Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Today, the United States has tested its very first coronavirus vaccine. It went to a volunteer that you see right here, 43-year-old Jennifer Haller, who is from Seattle. That's one of the hardest hit areas for this virus in the nation, Washington State, with over 840 cases. It's a fast-moving story, and she joins us right now, the very first coronavirus vaccine volunteer, Jennifer Haller, and back with us for a medical perspective, Anne Rimion, an epidemiologist at UCLA. Uh, Jennifer Thank you uh, for what you're doing. Obviously, this fits into a lot of the different ways people uh, are participating and trying to help around the nation. Uh, and thank you for being uh, willing to talk with us. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And I uh, am so excited to be the first person. This is crazy. Yeah, right? <laughs> crazy is one word for it. I think it's it's got to have a, a lot of different feelings for you. Very straightforward. I'd love for you to just tell us, you know, as they say in your own words, how did this come about uh, and walk us through what happened today? Yeah, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a call for volunteers and I uh, filled out a form and got a call back and uh, went through the phone screen, passed that, uh, went in person for a physical exam, blood draw, uh, everything looked good there, and 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 here we are. I went in this morning at 8 a.m. and got the first dose. There it is. Uh, I am, you know, I, you know, we feel all of us. I know we feel so helpless. Like, what can we do? And and I am, am so excited that there was actually something that I could do, and and I did it, and I'm doing it. And I'm so proud of myself and, and so thankful for the privilege that I have that allows me to do this. Um, I, you know, uh, I'm healthy. I have a full-time job, salary job. My company is flexible. They allow me to take time off to do this. I've supported friends and family. Um, you know, my real concern is for the people that, that, uh, that have hourly jobs, uh, that life, lives are going to be severely impacted coming up soon. Based on what you're learning and what you're participating in, uh, where does this process go from here? I do a daily uh, log, uh, you know, temperature and, and any um, side effects that I'm feeling. I keep track of those. I, of course, call in if I have any issues. Uh, do a, a phone call tomorrow, phone call the next day. I'll do weekly follow-ups, and then I'll get a second dose of the vaccine in, uh, I think, about four weeks. And then I'll be followed through about 14 months through the study. And did the uh, folks involved in this tell you about any potential risks? Uh, obviously, this is, uh, to put it simply, uh, hopefully a good thing, uh, and you're participating in it. But you can imagine some people at home wondering, oh, my gosh, uh, everyone's nervous about all sorts of things right now. Um, how were you walked through the risk? How do you see that? Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, a really important thing to understand that that's really helped a lot of friends and family uh, who were concerned is that this this vaccine uses messenger RNA, so it does not use any of the virus. So at no point during the study will it be exposed to the virus. Uh, so, so that's awesome. Uh, you know, regular uh, potential side effects from from a vaccine. 
totally up for those. And then, of course, there's the absolute unknown, right? This one has never been tested in a human, and uh, I'm up for it. I'm ready. Uh, and if they do have a, a breakthrough here, would you be really excited to be a part of demonstrating that? I mean, there's so much of this story that's been so hard on people. It would seem this would be an opportunity, potentially. I don't want to get ahead of, uh, obviously, the test run, but, but would you be excited if it works out? Well, I mean, of course, yeah. I mean, the chance that 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 uh, that I could have something to do with with helping save lives is is huge. And you know, if, if this isn't the right vaccine or whatever, I mean, at least you know, I'm part of the the process. We're part of you know figuring this out and and getting closer to to something to help everybody. Yeah. Fantastic. Stay with me. Um, as mentioned, we're getting this very newsworthy perspective from you as Americans and people around the country and the world are wondering uh, about the race for a cure or a vaccine. Uh, as mentioned, uh, I have uh, Dr. Ramoyne here. Um, what do you think it's important that people understand uh, about these types of tests? So in terms of the vaccine that we're discussing right now, uh, vaccines will take a while to be able to, to move forward and to be able to uh, go through all the safety testing. There are a lot of regulatory aspects here and what this woman is doing right now, which is really wonderful, is participating in a vaccine trial. In terms of tests, uh, there are uh, several tests that are coming online and the more that we can get screening going uh, rapidly, disseminated everywhere, uh, the better we are and the more that we'll understand what we have in this country in terms of burden of infection that will help dictate where policy goes. And uh, again, following up to you, everyone wants to know about timelines. How quickly do you think we could learn about whether a given vaccine or a, uh, a given experimental cure uh, could be wor workable and then distributed? It, it really, there, there are several steps, regulatory steps that have to happen, and this is to protect people, to make sure that there are no side effects, that there, that the safety data is really straight, uh, is, is very good. And once we have those data, then it can move forward into the next step. But, but there are always uh, several regulatory steps that protect uh, everyone so that when a vaccine is available to the public, it will, um, it, it, we'll know that it works well. And we still do believe that this will take at least a year or so to be able to be available to the public. So right now, all of the measures that we're talking about, we can't be putting our hopes into a vaccine. Mm. Uh, we need to be putting our, our energy into social distancing, to making sure that hospitals are not overloaded and that everybody does their part to be able to slow the spread of this virus. Really great points about the difference between a panacea or hoping for this to all just be worked out versus all the things we've been covering that people still have to do. Uh, Jennifer, final question. What do your friends and family say? What are you telling them? Uh, you know, some were, were wary about it, um, but no, it is amazing the outpouring of support and love that I've received from from friends and family, and the, I've had messages from strangers on Facebook thanking me, and and it, it's so. I'm just so thankful that 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 I get to be part of this. Uh, fantastic. I think it's great what you're doing. I appreciate you not only doing it, but taking time to share something that is, uh, for some people, would obviously be uh, private or difficult. You're clearly a person that's, that's willing to jump in and also be a part of sharing um, what could be the search for some scientific breakthroughs here. Uh, Jennifer Haller, thank you. The first human-to-human -human transmission of coronavirus hitting California. That is a big story tonight. Also, later tonight, we have a special report on Senator Elizabeth Warren's backstory. 
how the deep history of her populist ideas are actually still shaping this race in ways people may not always see. We're going to get into that. And we're going to the famed Red Rooster in Harlem talking with voters about Bernie Bloomberg and a whole lot more. That is on tonight's show. But our top story right now is the president facing growing concerns about the coronavirus, anxiety over how prepared he is to handle it, how he is leading this government. Health officials today scrambling to learn how a California patient has now become America's official first case. Officials do not believe that this patient had enough exposure through travel or a known infected individual. The state monitoring more than 8,400 people for this virus. That includes all of the medical personnel dealing with the patient. California's governor says everyone's concerned. The patient was not tested initially for four days. Meanwhile, there are reports that the Health and Human Services Department has more than a dozen workers, this is in the Trump administration, operating, quote, without proper training for infection control or the appropriate protective gear. All of that greeting the first Americans evacuated from China after the outbreak. This virus has hit at least 47 countries around the world. And the context more widely is the reaction in the markets, the economy. We're seeing a deep dive today. That is a week-long slide. Many are noting the obvious. For a president who has openly disdained experience and science and government service, this is a test of how President Trump leads. He is already under fire for what experts say, this isn't me, but what experts and doctors and scientists say were remarks in this famed press conference to first brief the nation about this that effectively downplayed the actual evidence, facts, and science of the threat, including, according to experts, some misinformation from the president's mouth himself, undermining credibility America needs. And the risk to the American people remains very low. The level that we've had in our country is very low, and those people are getting better. We're very, very ready for this, for anything, whether it's going to be a, a breakout of larger proportions. Experts, though, disagreeing with President Trump. Actually, I, I found most of what he said a little incoherent, and he told you, he just revealed how ignorant he is about the situation. Um, we don't know how similar or dissimilar this is to the flu. We know one thing, it actually is more communicable than the flu. It passes between people very, very easily. Give us data to make informed decisions. Otherwise, we're flying blind. We're just guessing. When somebody gets in front of a camera and offers reassurance, you should ask yourself, is this person focusing on the stock market or public health? A fair question, and here are the facts about public health. The president had said there were 15 cases here in the U.S. That is false. The CDC, which is, of course, part of the government, says the case load is 60. The president saying he doesn't know whether or not the spread is inevitable. Well, that's not what the experts say. The CDC say this is now at a point, according to the evidence they've gathered, that this is not a if it will happen, but a quote exactly when it will happen. The president also ventured the idea that a vaccine would come rapidly. Officials say you cannot rely on a vaccine for several months to a year. It all depends on how you define rapidly. We're joined now by several experts to cut through this. The former governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman, led the EPA under President George W. Bush, is experienced with how government and science interact, particularly in crisis, and Dr. Erwin Redlener from Columbia University. Uh, my thanks to both of you. Uh, Dr. 
What was your view of the president's remarks, and what is the actual facts and science uh, that Americans need to know? It was essentially a surreal experience watching this, and reminiscent of, if you remember, after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, when the president was bragging about the fact that his, his government had everything under control, there was only 64 fatalities, and it turned out to be there was actually 3,000. And yesterday, we retreated to the president with this irrational reassurance to the American people that everything is under control. It is clearly not under control. And within moments, his own professional public health experts were uh, contradicting what he was saying. Well, let's get right to that, because when I sat down at the news desk, you flagged that. Uh, and there is real-time evidence of that, which, again, sometimes what's most important is to fact-check and learn from these government experiences, not take them at face value. To your point and for your fact-checking on the other side, let's look at that. Well, I don't think it's inevitable. I probably will. It possibly will. We do expect more cases. The degree of risk has the potential to change quickly. We're rapidly developing a vaccine. We can't rely on a vaccine over the next several months to a year. Do you trust your health officials to give you good information, or oh, do you sure. trust your own instincts more? I don't think I have. They've said it could be worse, and I've said it could be worse, too. I also think, no, I don't think it's inevitable. You know, this is, uh, for him to say that, in proximity to his public health officials actually contradicting that. Things like, you know, that the vaccine will be ready rapidly. Rapidly is not a year to 18 months, which is the reality. And this disconnect from reality just undermines the president's ability to make a credible case almost about anything at this point. So is it counterproductive from a medical leadership perspective, your expertise, to try to calm people by telling them there's not much to do when in your view, is the whole point that if people get more prepared, that sure. would help. So the fine line here and what really defines a leader is the ability to find at a situation at a time like this, that right space between complacency and panic. And I would expect more of a president generally. I guess that's not something we should, uh, I guess, expect all that often from this particular president. And it was very disappointing and it undermines the public's ability to have confidence in what their leaders are saying at just at the time where we, they need to have a lot of confidence in what's being said. Stay with me. Let me bring in uh, Governor Todd, who has mentioned dealt with science uh, in a, a federal administration. Uh, your view? Well, I think part of the problem is that this administration has been decimating the scientists. They've gotten rid of so many. There are not, we don't have the, the infrastructure still at the Department of Health or the CDC. They're lacking that institutional knowledge as to how to move forward, how to handle this. I agree with the doctor. It's not a time to panic, but it is a time to take precautions and to be serious about it. I mean, this is a disease, and doctor, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that even from uh, some of the worst influenza outbreaks that we've had, that the death rate is around 1.5 to 2, whereas, I mean, excuse me, 0.5 to 0.2, whereas now with this one, it's 2, which is, it means that not everybody's going to die from it, of course not, but it has a higher death rate proportionally to the number of people impacted. And we're finding it now in a variety of different countries, but we seem to be acting like China or Iran in denying that it's really happening or anything hmm. to worry about. And that's not what a leader should be doing. We've got to say, yes, 
This is real. It's happening. We need to take precautions, and we have the experts to do it. I'm just worried that those who spoke out at that press conference will no longer be employed by the government. Well, that's a chilling statement when you say that. You talk about uh, the gutting of science. Uh, you talk about denial. The reporting on this is really striking. It won't surprise people who follow this, this the president's approach to expertise, as mentioned in government. But uh, reading from reporting here, Trump disbanding the part of his national security team responsible for responding to infectious disease outbreak, in part because the administration scaled back its efforts to fight global health threats over the past few years, Governor. Right. Yes, I mean, that's the problem. We have been scaling back because he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand the importance of science. A lot of these decisions, yes, all of course, there's always a political aspect, a policy aspect to decision-making. But in cases like this, you base it on the best science that you can get. And if you don't have the scientists there with the background and the ability to do the work, if they don't have the money to be able to do the research, it's it's yeah. undermining your ability to to combat this. So, so doctor, and that's very troublesome. Yeah, no, I, I think you put that so clearly, doctor. Uh, for people watching right now who say, "Okay, got it. There's a problem. Got it. The president wasn't accurate." Right. What are the most important things people can do for themselves and their families in the days ahead on a short-term basis? Sure. First thing is to stay informed, and that means not relying on social media and the internet to figure out what's going on. And there's some very legitimate and excellent sources of information. For example, cdc.gov, and people should go there for information. So number one, go to cdc.gov to yes. get the facts and prevention yes. materials. Number two? Number two, ramp up our general hygiene habits. So mm -hmm. a lot of hand washing. Uh, if you have a cold or a cough or sneezing, don't go out in public. Stay home. Don't go to work and don't go to school right now. That's, that's not a bad okay. idea either. And the next thing is that if you get sick with a respiratory infection, and especially if you have a fever and shortness of breath, check in with your doctor. That's, this is a good time to do that. Otherwise, I'm getting just... And my last question. Yeah. What if you are uninsured and worried about the cost of checking in? Well, this is the, the horrible downside of having a system in the U.S. that does not have uh, universal access to health care for everybody, and we're going to pay a price for this, as we would in any major uh, epidemic or pandemic. And you have to go then to an emergency room or you have to go to a federally qualified health center, a clinical uh, setting where you can get care at uh, either free or at some uh, scaled down fee. But getting the attention early before you're actually spreading it to other people is, is very key here. Understood. And this is part of why we want to do our coverage this way from the top, which is CDC yeah. as your source, not social media, not rumor. Increase your hygiene, something anyone can do. Yeah. Uh, and then third, if you, if you don't have a medical professional doctor in your life, learn about your local clinics and low-cost options so that you're ready. Exactly. Uh, because as you say, it could get even, even worse without panic. I appreciate you being here. And the governor uh, who's joined us before, Christine Todd Whitman, thanks to both of you. The risks of the coronavirus that is also specifically facing nurses, doctors, healthcare workers, we're seeing all of this come into view. Reports tonight, two ER doctors are in critical condition because while they were doing their job in their public health care work, they themselves contracted the virus. Meanwhile, the head of America's largest union for nurses warns that many nurses are still lacking the protective equipment, gowns, covering for the head, legs, and feet that are needed to fight the virus. And today, here was the head of the Minnesota Nurses Association. Minnesota nurses from many different hospitals believe their respective hospitals are unprepared and unequipped to protect nurses. I have witnessed this mad scramble for people to get the PPE that 
oh, you only have one or two masks left on the floor, and that's in the charge nurse's desk up at the desk, They're the drawer, or it's locked up. And now that brings us to Lisa Merck, a Colorado nurse practitioner who started feeling sick after returning home from a trip to Hawaii. In fact, we have this photo of her. This is days before becoming trip. Life was normal like so many of us were experiencing normal life, vacations, travel. She was feeling ill for weeks, but it was initially denied a test. And then when she did get one, it came back positive. Uh, Lisa Merck is here and joins me along with, returning back to the broadcast, Professor Hasseltine, an infectious disease expert. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. Uh, walk us through uh, what you felt and then how you were delayed in getting the test. Well, my symptoms actually started on around February 18th, 19th. I just had a tiny, slight runny nose. Um, and then my body started aching, um, but we were traveling. So I thought maybe it was because um, we were traveling, we were carrying backpacks. Um, we had been gone for about three weeks. Then we came back, um, I went and got a massage. I just thought maybe that'll help out. Um, and then it just, my symptoms kind of waxed and waned. I felt good. I went and volunteered for um, a race. I watched my little nephew. Um, and then on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd is when I started getting a fever. So I had a fever. My husband also had a fever. We laid in bed and just kind of laid low. Um, I went to my clinic and I got an influenza A and B test because I thought maybe we had the flu. Tested us for influenza. That was negative. And then on um, the 2nd of um, uh, March, I called the CDC and I called our local public health department and just told them about all of the travel that we had. I told them what my symptoms were, that I had a fever but and no cough or anything like that, but they said that I didn't meet the criteria for any type of testing. So then I went back to my clinic. I worked. I was feeling a little bit better. And then on the 5th, So six, just let me, seven, let me pause there. Go ahead. Uh, Lisa, just, just for our reporting purposes, uh, you had your view, your effort to take that precaution, but in this world we're living in and with the shortage, you were basically told, A, no test, but B, you could still go back to work. I, I never really asked if I could go back to work. I just assumed it was okay because nobody seemed at really a heightened alert that I would have the coronavirus, and I didn't either. Um, so yeah. I went back to work for a couple days, and then the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th of March is when I started feeling really ill. I started getting very nauseous. My body was hurting much worse, my joints. I just felt like every time I stood up, I wanted to, um, every time I stood up, I wanted to collapse. And I um, was having shortness of breath. And then I finally asked my husband to take me to the emergency room on March 8th, where he took me in there. And then they did a full workup on me. They did a chest X-ray. They found out I had viral pneumonia. My white blood count was low. Um, they did a CMP, that was fine. Um, and then they did a, the COVID-19 test. Um, they did the COVID-19 test, that was positive. And then they sent me home um, and told me to wait. So that was on March 8th. I didn't get my results back until four days later um, on March 11th. So I've been on isolation basically since March so 8th. So what's your what's your takeaway from this? Do you, you you look at this like, hey, this could have gone better? I think it could have gone better. I think we can test more people. We can get the tests out uh, rapid, you know, much faster. Um, right now, I have some friends and family that are still waiting for their tests. They got them on Friday, and they're still waiting for test results today. 
Yeah. So I think um, I think rapid testing is going to be key right now. Stay, stay with us. Uh, it's very striking mm -hmm. to hear your story. And Professor, I want to bring you in and play something new uh, of, of a question because everyone can understand if you say, well, the system is stretched and working as best it can with a priority matrix. I think most people can, can accept that. And yet, as with so many things in America, it's not a uniform priority matrix. There have been reports of other people who may not really meet the criteria somehow as VIPs still getting uh, tested before, say, potentially a nurse like what we're hearing from. So, Professor, listen to this exchange with the president today. How are non-symptomatic professional athletes getting tests while others are waiting in line and can't get them? Do the well-connected go to the front of the line? Well, that, you'd have to ask them that question. I mean, they, uh, I, I've read. No, I wouldn't say so, but perhaps that's uh, been the story of life. That does happen on occasion, and I've noticed where some people have been tested uh, fairly quickly. Professor? Uh, that's the worst type of public health. What you should have with a disease like this is contact tracing. Anybody with symptoms that fall within a very broad category should be tested. You should test everybody who has been in contact with those people and trace all of their contacts, followed by mandatory quarantine. Everybody who has symptoms that are broadly defined should be tested. It is not a question of how many tests you have only. If you don't have the test, you can't do it. But now that we're about to have the test, about means in a few days, it's how you use those tests that are going to be mm. really important. Italy had a lot of tests and has had a big problem. They didn't do rigorous contact tracing and mandatory isolation. Yeah. That's what needs to be done now. And let me take a final question, Elisa. We're a little short on time, heads up. Um, but mm -hmm. what do you say uh, to other nurses and doctors who look at this and their families and are thinking about the risk exposure? Um, what do you say to them? Because clearly you seem to believe in your profession and, and this mm -hmm. is hard on everyone. Well, I have a lot of, you know, friends in the nursing field, in the healthcare field, and they're just really worried. They're like, is this worth it, you know, to my family? Am I bringing stuff home to my family? And, you know, for me as a nurse and to my fellow nurses and healthcare providers as, am I going to get reinfected again? You know, and the other thing is, how long am I how long am I a carrier for? Because right now I've been told you need to have two negative corona tests 24 hours apart. And then I was just told the other day that I only need isolation for 10 days and now I don't need any other testing. And so I am very worried about going back in the public sector and practicing. Hmm. Professor, can you briefly resolve that for us, possibly? Uh the, I wish I could. There is no answer to that question. The only answer to that question is to make sure testing is done frequently, not just every so often. Every day is the best way to do these testing. And certainly she needs to be tested many times, at least twice, before she goes back to work. Part of the problem okay. is the tests just aren't available yet to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, I, first of all, I appreciate both of your candor in walking us through what we know and don't know. And acknowledging what we don't know is also part of this. Second, we do have the reports of federal government and the Congress uh, drastically increasing uh, the funding and the support for testing. So that part of the help is on the way. Right. Um, I want to thank Professor Hasseltine, who was with us uh, for multiple parts of the show, and Lisa Merck. I want to wish you, of course, uh, continued speedy recovery. And thank, thank you, you and all the nurses like you doing your work. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
The coronavirus outbreak has sparked many responses for containment and prevention. The U.S. already committing over $100 billion with more coming. But some of the most important measures you can take are simple and cheap, like washing your hands to prevent getting or spreading the virus in the first place. That's the top recommendation from the CDC. And lately, we've been hearing about it a lot. Wash your hands. That is the best thing that you can do. Stay away from uh, people and wash your hands. But a really good recommendation is to wash your hands often. Wash your hands frequently. Uh, soap and water, vigorously washing your hands for 20 seconds is what the American public needs to do. If you've touched anything, you go and wash your hands again. 20 seconds with soap. Stay calm and wash your hands. It's a step that just about everyone agrees on across the world, as we have also seen in some international public service ads that have gone viral. Wash your hands. Others are joining in with homemade announcements in Australia. You see, someone did skywriting with that same message. So what do we know about this simple and crucial step? First, you need soap and time. The best thing is to wash for 20 to 30 seconds, removing over 99% of bacteria. In the first 15 seconds, you knock out about 90% of it. But many people simply do not wash long enough to remove the bacteria. And that means as well, especially men, who do statistically worse on hygiene than women, according to studies. Now, second, you need that time because most soap does not actually kill germs. It works actually by mechanically removing them from your hands, as a Harvard Medical School guide explains. The soap surrounds and removes the germs and viruses that would otherwise stick to you. Soap molecules acting like crowbars to wedge the bacteria off of our skin and then thankfully render viruses useless. Now, a third thing about hand washing. We've actually had this technology for a while. It dates back all the way to the 1840s when a Hungarian doctor discovered the basic act of doctors washing their hands lowered the death rate of women during childbirth. That's an important thing that reminds us where we're coming from. Now, fourth, Washing works best to combat the specific times that you would contact germs. So to be clear, this is not like brushing your teeth automatically twice a day. It's more like using a napkin when you eat. You need to wash every time you have likely contact with germs. Typically, that's after the bathroom or before preparing food and eating, of course, and always whenever you might have contact with someone ill. But that brings us to, again, why understanding what we're doing is so important. This is not a typical time because of this virus most contact with any people or any public surfaces will be a reason for you to wash. As this pandemic spreads, because at times it's spreading by people who of course don't even know they have it, which means you wouldn't know they have it. Now, if people have heard most of this since, well, being children, right? And we've heard it for years straight, why are we even still talking about it? Why are there these public service ads and these press conferences and these reminders? Well, for the answer to that, consider something that we all see several times a day, those signs in bathrooms that tell employees to wash their hands. I'm sure you know the ones. They tell employees simply, wash your hands before returning to work. There are ones nudging people by suggesting washing 
hands can even, you see here, make you cuter. In fact, I think we can bring these into full. We should make these as big as possible, this one. If we have, yep, whatever. This one has two categories, maybe like a centaur and a mermaid, but it says whatever, just wash your hands. Another iconic bathroom sign pays tribute to local culture. Uh, Texas coronavirus prevention, wash your hands like you just got done slicing jalapenos for a batch of nachos and you need to take your contacts out, which is very Texas and very memorable. Or take this one from an LA restaurant, which insists that both decency and state law require you to wash your hands. And guess what? That is true. Federal rules really do require, not only the food establishments provide sinks for their staff, that's just the action part, right? But also that they literally post those signs that tell employees to wash their hands. It's an FDA rule. So just like we've all been getting these seemingly obvious reminders to wash our hands to combat the virus, food workers get that reminder daily, along with any customers who use the same bathrooms. So why am I telling you this on the news tonight? Well, here's what's really interesting. Whether this sounds obvious or not, these reminders, these signs, they work. This is where medical science meets psychology. About 40% of Americans say signs do make them more likely to wash. And when researchers monitored bathrooms with and without signs, boom, they found just the posting of a sign led to an almost 10% increase in washing. Now, nationwide, that means these signs can increase hand washing by the millions, which saves lives during a pandemic. And that's not all. Research also showing 70% of people wash more thoroughly when they hear that it's flu season. And coronavirus is something like the flu on super steroids. So as simple as hand washing sounds, the research shows this isn't something to just take for granted. We actually know that when hand washing is more on autopilot, statistically, a lot of people don't do it enough or don't do it long enough to make it effective against viruses. But the good news is when hand washing is promoted and touted and nudged in bathrooms, when it is mentioned and explained and prompted in our everyday life, when it even becomes, yes, part of our daily culture, the actual hand washing increases. So as you see people mixing in some hijinks in these yes, serious times, remember, even lighthearted reminders, they're effective. They are a serious public service. That's why I wrote a song that's informational that you can sing while you're washing your hands. There are so many things that can kill you. Rock it, yeah! A good employee always scrubs his hands thoroughly. Be sure to get under those fingernails. And don't forget about the knuckles. To get everyone washing their hands right now thoroughly, we need all the reminders we can get. Really, the more memorable, the better. This is a time to get as germophobic as possible. As the rapper Big Sean once put it, I can't dap you without hand sand. I don't know where your dirty hands been. He has a point. Because America, this is no time to be riding dirty. This is the week America learned it was in a true public health crisis, and we're seeing some intense reactions to the news. From uncertainty to panic, investors react to Wall Street's worst day since Black Monday, more than 30 years ago. I do not even feel like pressing the buttons. Oh, Jesus. I went to, to a, a supermarket yesterday, and for some reason, 
they had a pallet of, of toilet paper in and the back. Took it. I did, and I <laughs> held it dearly, and I'm not really sure why. Okay. There's a suburb of New York, New Rochelle, that has a major outbreak, and they now have a one-mile radius containment zone. You can see the workers in hazmat suits setting up a drive-through testing facility in what was a normal parking lot. And those images obviously ricochet. New Rochelle residents say they have a weariness hitting them and a deep sense of anxiety throughout the community. Or take a look at a half-mile line to get into one California Costco, a familiar scene around the nation. Now, taking these precautions, getting food and supplies, is a perfectly good thing. But as these challenges multiply, how do you balance urgency with the stress and maintaining vigilance instead of panic? We turn now to Tony Schwartz, co-author of The Art of the Deal and founder of The Energy Project, an organization that advises major companies. This week, he's actually presented to 15 chief medical officers in the U.S. about how to help people manage their stress and energy. Good to see you. Good to see you, sir. The difference between the feeling, the fear that can turn to panic and the actions that you should be focused on. Well, as soon as you feel panic, as soon as you start to catastrophize, your capacity gets diminished dramatically. We know that when people feel uh, those kinds of emotions, they their vision narrows, their ability to think clearly goes away, they're either their anger or their frustration or their impatience grows. So really the, the big issue is how do you take care of yourself? How do you take care mm. of the part of yourself that is most frightened? And doesn't that also go to who's making the decision? If we do it right, we have to listen to experts. But in so doing, we have less control. I want to play for you just some other sound we have of people finding out they have to move or go or deal with this and the reactions. Take a look. It was kind of panic because the airline had no idea what to do, what to say. They didn't even, you know, they didn't even know to tell us to get on the plane, not get on the plane. So most of us made the decision to stay back. So you guys are moving out. What are you taking with you? <laughs> Everything. Whole <laughs> dorm. When did you hear about this? This is the first yesterday. Load. Yesterday. You heard about, was this a surprise? Yeah. There's a lot of fear around, and no, no one is really sure what to do. Well, there's nothing more traumatizing for human beings than to feel out of control, than to feel helpless. That's why children are so vulnerable. Mm. Um, but we have a child within us as well, and that's what's getting triggered. The adult part of ourselves, the, the most mature, the calmest part of ourselves is the one we need to be in charge, and it needs to be providing comfort to that part of ourselves that feels so vulnerable. But instead, we end up reacting. We go into anger or we disappear. We go numb. We either overstate the problem or we understate the problem. There is a part of us, and you need to make a distinction between these three aspects of ourselves, these three parts of ourselves, the part that is overwhelmed, mm -hmm. that's, a very, that's a very young part of us, the part that is the survival self that tries to take care poorly, tries to take care of that overwhelmed child, and then the adult, which gets lost in the mix when the survival self starts taking over. 40 seconds left, which is the perfect amount of time for the question. What happens yeah, to I those... I was told it was going to be an hour. <laughs> That's the whole show. What happens to those mechanisms when people don't trust authority? They need to... I'm, I'm going to put it positively. Okay. They need to turn to themselves. 
You know, Trump ultimately is irrelevant in this. The guy knows nothing about what's going on, and he's never going to say anything true. We need to turn to our own resources. We can't be in victim mode, because when you're in victim mode, though it feels good to push away the responsibility, you lose all capacity to take action. That's so important, and that's where the precautions also meet the politics. We have a cycle of blame, and many politicians deserve some of the blame, and yet the solutions here are not in that cycle. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.